Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Um, so uh, I do think that there is there is a way in which there can be a more respectful next step about how people think about how they're drinking better for you, uh, whether that's drinking non-pasteurized beers, a lot of the B vitamins and other sorts of um, benefits that can be um, extrapolated. I don't want to say scientifically proven uh, <laughs> across the board. I'm not trying to articulate that. But I just don't see how there can't be something better about what we've had here versus some of what we've been talking about. And again, that's just my, my personal bias. But. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. We're back in the studio this week for the first time since October, enjoying a few beers with Samu Rock. Our wide-ranging conversation touches on Samu's musical endeavors as a multi-instrumentalist and vocalist in dark heavy bands Karin and Wintering, the importance of seeking new niche experiences, whether at home or abroad, here in metal intersections by way of Hammer Heart Brewing, and what it has been like working as a beer distribution rep during the pandemic. On the back nine of our discussion, we hear about developments and trends Samu is observing on-premise as key account and specialty brand manager for Lewis Glunt, a Chicagoland beer distributor, will flavored mall beverages and ready-to-drink products continue to eat away at beer's market share in bars and restaurants as it has in the cold box and on shelves in grocery and liquor stores, we also discussed the variety of roles collaboration can play between breweries and in communities, as well as the challenges and opportunities existent for concert promoters, podcasters, and beer distributors to do more to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in the spaces we love every day. Let's dive and get heavy. Samu, welcome to Heavy Hops. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. You've offered a, a big reveal. A medium reveal. I, I'm really excited for yeah. this like reveal that I'm imagining <laughs> to be a quinceanera meets like uh, <laughs> some type yeah. of other like religious coming of age uh, ceremony. Maybe or something like that. Or maybe the beer has come to age. Oh, uh, oh uh, it's possible, actually. Yeah, on, uh, definitely on at least some of this. Would yeah. you like to uh, sure. to do the honors here? Let's let's initiate. Uh, there are there are a couple sort of tiers on this one, uh, depending on where the conversation leads us. So it's a tiered cake for my quinceanera. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and part of this actually was just to help keep things cold, and that is uh, a bag of uh, frozen corn. So oh. The, uh, well, as it as it thaws, we'll have a snack. Uh, yeah, and that's actually on my grocery list for after this. So I'll take that. If you're Hopefully, it imparts no DMS flavors into the beers. <laughs> But uh, the, the primary It's not pieces, buttered, is it? Uh, no. Okay, no, But depending on what else you've got in there, we can maybe figure it out. <laughs> uh, but heavy hops being what it is, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting to perhaps pull out of the cellar was this Hammerheart 750. Uh, the last Hammerheart beer that I have in my cellar, um, a salty Gessick that is probably about four years old. And uh, I texted Austin earlier today and said, I know you're generally not supposed to age salties. 
what are your thoughts? And he said, it should probably still be holding. So that one certainly has come to age. Uh, and something else that I thought might be rather fun to play with, and I haven't opened it all yet, is a Spawn from Jester King. I know we've talked about them time to time, and I uh, don't know how much you might have been tasting of them of late, and I certainly haven't had this expression. This might depend on whether you have a cork uh, opener here, wine key. Oh, we do. We do. We do. Look at those pros. Okay. That's a 2018 uh, raspberry and cherry. Cool. Uh, and well, then just for some general palate cleansers, yeah. <laughs> uh, should, should that become necessary, about a few. Um, oh, that's actually also the other piece. Uh, a few Stiegel Gold Poise. Oh, cool. Just for some lager love. Excellent. And then uh, this is beautiful. Picked up on the way down a can of the older Irving Things We Don't Say beer. Excellent. Uh, I think we can make that an excellent talking piece for later. Yep, sounds good. <laughs> um, I would. Uh, uh, there are actually three of these Stiegels. Oh, perfect. All right. Beautiful. So yeah. sidecar. Sidecar. Or this is like, <laughs> I wouldn't really call it the sidecar. It's more of the. Its own, its own car. Own vehicle. Own vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> let's uh, let's start with this uh, Sati from uh, Hammerheart, if that's cool. It is. I'm very excited. So uh, Hammerheart illustrates a really fun, uh, as a brewery really illustrates a fun, oh, we can just do both too. Why not? Why not? <laughs> um, illustrates a very fun correlation between metal and beer. And I think that that's something that you share a sentiment in as well. So as we kind of like pour this and drink it and, and enjoy it for a little while, um, what, uh, what came first for Samu, beer or metal? Uh, good question. Uh, definitely it would be metal uh, since I got into that rather ahead of the time where I could actually be doing beer in any kind of legal or even quasi-legal capacity, uh, which I managed to do eventually anyway. But uh, metal certainly came first, um, was... A little behind the curve on that, actually, since I'd grown up at various different points, exploring other genres and obsessing over them quite um, singularly. That I would only listen to hip hop, or only listen to country, or only listen to classical, or Motown, or something to that extent. Um, and eventually got to metal, and uh, that rabbit hole lasted quite a while. And then eventually discovered that metal has virtually every other genre built into it. Um, certainly some more organically than others. Uh, and via that backed into all these other genres essentially over time and uh, had been doing that for probably about oh three or four years to some degree before um, beer really entered the entered the fray uh, I had always been very interested in uh, alcohol as a fermentable um, or something that you can distill just to play with a, a flavoring element um, but it was more just on a sort of um, chemical level or historical level mm -hmm. than it was anything that I was actually interested in drinking. Um, but I eventually discovered the error of my ways. <laughs> and so <laughs> here we are. And was anyone in your family uh, involved in the, like the hospitality industry? Sure, uh, yeah. Was that also kind of an introduction for you into this sort of world of entertainment and beverage as well? Good question. Uh, yes and no, in that both parents were involved in hospitality, catering, um, uh, mostly in New England, and uh, father uh, ran a restaurant. Um, so cooking was, I suppose, a little more of something that was part of the, the focal piece of uh, being thoughtful about food and didn't have to be fancy, but at least should be good. 
um, with respect to drink, uh, it wasn't necessarily something that was a sidebar piece, but neither was it really heavily prioritized. Um, my father described himself as like a connoisseur of cheap red wine, that kind of thing. And uh-huh. we'd occasionally uh, would appreciate some uh, some some better better spirits uh, as time has passed, and we've um, picked up that that uh, that thread pretty distinctly. Uh, as have I too, also with my, my mother and other parts of the family, which is not a particularly large family, but yeah, it was more the food side and, uh, beer I mostly pursued on my own, uh, which I think made it a little more of an organic kind of exploration instead of being always growing up in a Miller family, damn it, or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, it was just whatever I ended up finding. Um, and beer ex- itself wasn't explicitly the first point of interest too. It just felt the most democratic to be able to get to in upper echelon. If you want to get into wine, you want to get into spirits, you can do that. Great. But you're going to be spending a lot more money than if you're trying mm-hmm. to get some excellent world-class beers and two, just the personalities. Maybe perhaps it's some of the same experience that you had moving from metal to beer or through beer. Um, we'd be interested to hear that perspective from your side too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that beer was something that I gravitated towards because things with high alcohol generally, were things that I had trouble enjoying because of the high, the, the big like fusel presence that you had, whether it was in, sp- especially in spirit, but also in wine. Mm-hmm. And it was that sort of sensory uh, experience that trumped the stories and trumped some of the, the kind of other aspects that do tend to draw people in, mm-hmm. uh, was that I thought the stories were interesting in those, but because I didn't really enjoy actually drinking them, I think that sort of stalled my exploration of those beverages uh, in some way. Sure. That being said, uh, travel uh, was something that reinvigorated a lot of that when I started traveling on my own mm-hmm. for music and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, being able to sort of see these beverages in their homes and seeing people consume mm. them in uh, ways. Yeah, in context, uh, changed the game for me. And also learning how to taste and learning how mm-hmm. to look past these like fusel alcohols and finding things that don't have that at the forefront and recognizing my palate biases mm-hmm. uh, allowed me to move past that uh, eventually. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a good way to phrase it, yeah. Uh, I think you find that too, also even with certain beer styles, we have two of them on the table in front of us now, arguably three actually with IPAs and such. Uh, but there's the initial sense of that tastes sour or that tastes like bacon or that tastes like orange juice right? and wanting something different from that experience and then learning how to dwell with that, figure it out and then dig into the next, next tier that, uh, yeah, all that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Somebody described sours to me in the sense of, uh, try it and then try it two more times. First time, get some shock to the palate second time, begin to reorient and third time really figure out how to re-engage or step back into that dance in a way that you can, um, to mix metaphors, get those gears aligned mm-hmm. and uh, find smoke beer in a sense to be similar, uh, but perhaps slightly less poetic in that uh, be given a rauch beer and say, I don't want to hear from you until you finish this half liter and then maybe <laughs> we'll talk possibly, but you should maybe just have another one and then we'll talk maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, for me, when I shifted from, uh, I I used to be really into wine and it was, uh, like you were saying, that barrier to entry, the price point to drink those really high end wines was just Mm. an insane price point on a bottle. Whereas, you know, you can drink a Lambic for 
a fraction of that price. Yeah. Uh, it's something that's still within ever within everyone's reach. And then wine has a ton of variability, but it only stems as far as the different kinds of grapes and uh, different fermentation practices. Sure, but at the end of the day, I feel like there's so many different flavors to explore in beer, mm. and so that's kind of where my love for it came from mm-hmm. was just having so much available to me that I could enjoy, and then just that breadth of uh, flavor profile. Yeah. Uh, well, cheers to that. I suppose. Cheers. What are we going to start with here? We've uh, got Satya, oh, yeah, it looks like. Got, I think, yeah, let's, yeah. let's get the Satya go. Yeah. Cheers. Right. So, Kippies. Kippies. Yeah, I'd say that's holding up. Yeah, yeah. age did not murder this beer. <laughs> uh, this is delightful. So, uh, for, for you, Samu, I know you spent some time in Scandinavia mm. and this is a Scandinavian style, so we got a perfect link up here. Sure. Uh, <laughs> what kind of took you over to Scandinavia, and at that time uh, in your life, was uh, was beer something that you were enjoying? Mm. Uh, it's well, I'd always had uh, an, an interest in wanting to to, to go, and that uh, that is a family background. Have um, plenty of. Well, plenty of relatives since again, family's not that large, but cousins there and um, history that was always rooted to uh, some very specific parts of mostly Western Sweden. Um, there are other elements of the the family tree for sure, but the one that has the um, the deepest and most known roots is is Western Sweden. Uh, and initially, particularly when I was much younger, there wasn't a lot of uh, opportunity to explore that culture either because internet wasn't as developed or I was living in Southern Texas and you don't have an Andersonville in Southern Texas as you do sort of here. Uh, and I, it did sort of fall a bit off of my radar, even through some parts of college. And when I was making my first ventures to Europe, which was mostly focused on Germany, uh, since I had friends there and spoke the language. Uh, but when I got into grad school uh, for my MBA, I ended up at North Park University, uh, Blue and Yellow, the Vikings, founded by the Swedish Lutherans and all such things, and was looking at a study abroad program. And uh, the advisor, whose name was Anhelen Andersson, naturally, uh, she suggested that I go to Sweden, and this is about already more than 10 years ago. Um, so first time I went over was as a student for grad school, and uh, at that point I already was uh, attuned to beer, but technically wasn't old enough to work in the industry as a representative. Um so it wasn't something that I had as much of a grasp or really keen mind on or uh, broad relationships that were built. Um, so it was a lot of use logger, the light loggers there. But I did know enough to dig into some things and teach teach the cousins. Like we'd go to the Systemats uh, and uh, I'd point out the Carnegie Porter on, on the bottom shelf for virtually nothing and say, you should buy that. You should put that in the back of your cupboard and you should come back to it in five years and thank me because you're going to love it. Uh, and, uh, it was instructive for sure. Uh, that was also some of the first trips were really, uh, discovered Lambic to a more, um, robust extent going to visit some friends in Germany. I had already been there several times to, uh, experience Kölsch and Köln and, uh, Altbier and Düsseldorf, um, Weissbier and, um, Lager in Bayern. Um, but hadn't really dove much deeper into the world of Lambic or some of the more esoteric English styles and uh, was in Copenhagen visiting, which to this day is still one of my favorite cities and uh, ended up at the Elbetiken, uh, which was a magnificent visit. Uh, it's actually where I learned to like double IPAs or any IPAs even too. Uh, it was 
browsing around and uh, looking to buy a bottle of something to take on a train down to visit some friends in Germany. And uh, the fellow who was running the shop, uh, these two were actually quite a, an amusing pair. There was a Swede who was studying to be a sommelier. Uh, he was very nicely done up with a vest and had a pencil mustache and a bolo tie chemical equation for fermentation tattooed on his forearm. I think I know this Swede. Really put together. Ole. Ole? Yes. Yes. Yeah, Ole. Ole. Uh, Shout out to Ole, wherever he is. And uh, he just wandered over with a little snifter of Dark Horse Double Crooketry and said, would you like a beer? And I said, absolutely. And uh, there was another chap who was working there, a Dane. I don't remember his name, but it seems like he just fell backwards into the job. This big, cheery, craggy looking fellow who think spent maybe most of his time as a surfer or some sort of totally random non-beer related thing. And they were just these, this yin and yang uh, of these two respective beer cultures and ended up spending about three, maybe four hours with him uh, talking about beer and art and politics and history and culture, how they reach interested and introduced into the category that they were working in. Uh, and credit to Ole. He's the one who, after all this said, what do you want to do? Why, why, what, what is this? And uh, at that point, this is on a subsequent visit back to Sweden, so I'm perhaps mixing these a little bit, but uh, I had been back over there to look for work in the music industry, uh, and uh, that had proved tricky, depending on what sort of visas were allowed. And I said, this seems pretty, this seems pretty all right. I, I enjoy this beer thing, this, this sort of exchange. And uh, yeah, they were some of the ones who really helped uh, kickstart that gear. Um, but it was really only in subsequent trips back to back to Sweden that I explored more of, of the beer world and had more people that I could be talking to. Certainly your connections there seem to be much, much more robust in Scandinavia than mine, tend to be more in the southern part of the, or at least middle part of the continent, Belgium and Germany. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I uh, definitely. And I think that for the folks that were able to go to Old Boutiquen uh, when it was open, if they had an American accent, they probably had hopefully an experience half as good as us. But I know that the hospitality at that place was very good. And I hope that um, Morton and everyone else that was kind of involved in that place was able to uh, land on their feet after it closed. But that's uh, an experience at a place like that kind of reminds me of early trips to Metal Haven. Sure. In yeah, a way. Absolutely. Uh, if Blake was not fucked up, <laughs> um, but definitely like uh, the level of sort of uh, conversation and the types of sort of um, the ways that one could be kind of taken into the world of like yep. it, of metal in the case of Metal Haven and like uh, the breadth of knowledge that the people that, uh, that worked there had. For my feeble little brain, mm-hmm. uh, when I first started going there, probably in like seventh grade, <laughs> uh, it was uh, it was pretty uh pretty awesome and also i think like empowering in a way because when you experience those things like that and i imagine for you going on a trip like you come back and just like there's doors that are open that Mm -hmm. you didn't even know existed they're like in a whole new building that you didn't Mm -hmm. even know existed and somehow somebody's just managed to beckon you on to well this is the speed rail and you could walk and slowly meander your way through all these closed passageways. But no, let me put you on the fast track. Put this in your hand, whether it's that record or that beer, and uh, can can be really curate that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's something maybe I've uh, tried to do a bit myself in the years since, and certainly have seen you do with what you've cultivated in, in Scorched Tundra and the people that have been part of that orbit. Mm-hmm. 
So let's talk about uh, Sati and this brewery, uh, Hammerheart. Do you want to kind of walk us through uh, through this beer and how you got to know this brewery? Sure. Uh, my first experience with Hammerheart was when they were still home brewing. Uh, and credit to to comrade of mine, John Becker, who uh, was a violinist and uh, was going down to Kentucky, where Austin was living at the time, uh, to play on, I think it was the album Kentucky. I believe this was 2012. And uh, John and I had a habit around this time of uh, we'd, um, we were both underemployed, one might say. So we'd uh, pick a lot of films and get some nice spreads of cheeses and pick up some beers and then just watch a lot of Ingmar Bergman films or whatever else it might be, Herzog and such. Uh, he introduced me to Twin Peaks. It was a hell of a summer. But uh, I usually handled the beer and then we'd collaborate on the other parts. And one time he said, you know, I've got the beer. Don't worry about it. Okay. And um, we put our things together. I don't remember what we were watching. It might have been Vodik Timon. And um, about halfway through, we take a break, and he opens up this growler and pours out uh, a glass of this just powerfully dark ale, uh, has this head that is half of the glass and is almost as dark as the beer itself. And um, he says, try this. Doesn't really give me any context. The growler is unmarked. Okay, and so take a sip and sort of a pupil dilating moment of what have I just experienced? This is unreal. And uh, he then laid out the experience of knowing Austin and uh, that this was beer that Austin was starting to make and beginning to wrap up into a professional brewery, having been an intern at Handover in Norway before. Um, and I then met Austin... I believe it was the following year uh, when we went to the Death Roll tour and stopped at local option beforehand. And I believe you were still there at that time, yeah? I think I was. I think you were. Uh, so I, you were probably there when I first met him in person, if I'm not mistaken. That was the first time you met him? Yeah. It really seemed as though you had been best buds forever. Ah, uh, that's part of his charm. That's part of his charm. It is. It's that Minnesota nice. It really is, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but we also had enough common cause and in, in uh, shared cultural backgrounds and uh, priorities. Um, so we met then, and then eventually uh, he moved up to Minnesota full time, where his his brother in law, his family was uh, Nathaniel, and uh, they opened Hammerheart in 2014. And we kept in touch uh, throughout that time, since just like minded. And uh, eventually, I started working in beer um, with Glunts and distribution. And at a certain point, Nathaniel, who's sort of handling some of the business side of things, said, we're kind of curious about the Chicago situation. What's what's the story? And I tried to be as level-headed as I could, uh, saying, these are some of Glunt's strengths. These are some strengths of Windy City or CBS or Lakeshore. Uh, breakthrough, rest in peace, almost half of those at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, mission Breakthrough, uh, not Breakthrough. Uh, Heartland was part of the scene there. Um, but at some point, um, he discovered or I mentioned that Glunz distributed Schlankella from Bamberg, Germany. And he said, oh, smoke beers. Yeah, we have a case of Schlankella in our house at virtually any given time. We need to continue this conversation. So eventually he brought down what's called a Kentucky six-pack, which is six growlers. And uh, <laughs> we met off the side of a highway just to chat a little bit uh, <laughs> nearby Mariano's. And he'd bought a bag of ice. <laughs> To bring to chill down the samples, a natural meeting point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and then we realized after our conversation that the entire bag of ice had melted. We just this conversation had been so ongoing. And uh, yeah, eventually Hammerheart started making little inroads into Chicago uh, through Glens, uh, mostly quarter barrels to start. Did some larger format bottles, and um, 
right now, they're not currently available in Chicago. Um, just keeping so much of their home market put together and dealing with all the ongoing situations with a year of plague and transitioning from these 750 milliliter bottles, which are now very much a thing of the past, into pretty much exclusively cans. Um, so it's it's been a, a long but not constant relationship, I guess, but certainly I've been up to see them several times in uh, their anniversary party in, in September is an excellent time. I have a friend who I think blacked out twice and started bleeding from the head, but that was his situation. <laughs> they are not rely they're not culpable in this in this at all. I feel like that requires a disclaimer for this yeah. event. This is not yeah. the same experience everyone will have. That's right. Um but uh yeah the the thing that has been such a, an overarching shared perspective in what they do is um some of it is imagery, uh which is um playing on a lot of the, the, not playing, but um, incorporating a lot of the traditions and the aesthetics and the principles that are not only part of um, Scandinavian culture, but also the Nordic pantheon, um, not to the extent where it's very hokey, uh, but it's it's very sincere. And um, Austin draws a lot of the labels and is it's very grassroots in that respect. Uh, and also to the way in which it's still very deeply connected to um, a local culture very hand wrought, uh, which is one of the other reasons why I thought Chester King was an appropriate companion to this. Mm. Uh, and then further, just the styles too. Smoke beer, it's the Rauchkult. If you're in it, you're in it. And if you're not, you are missing out. Uh-huh. Uh, the way in which they've been able to bring smoke beers or salties, uh, essentially anything that's not an IPA, uh, to an audience uh, around the world and also their local community. Uh, I recall them telling stories when they first opened, there'd be some of the the old timers and uh, who'd be wandering into the door expecting to get some blats or some uh, grain belt or something. And they'd say, nope, we've got pretty much all smoke beers over 7%. And people were very suspicious of them. But now a lot of those people are some of the most fervent supporters. And that's a credit not only to the quality of the beer that's making, but also the personalities behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, insofar as the salty specifically, um, I, I sort of erred in aging this since uh, the salty style typically not having any traditional hops designed to consume as quickly as possible, um, using some botanicals, juniper, um, other sorts of uh, foraged ingredients from the forest floor, to put it a little romantically, would provide some of those bittering agents, some of those antibacterial components. Uh, but for the most part, uh, this is a, a young beer. Um, in the Hammerhots context, they tend to keep things a little more robust, higher alcohol, um, Smoke itself certainly provides some sustaining flavors that are a little more durable than a lot of what you'd get in some other uh, representations. But uh, can't seem surprised that this is held up overall. Absolutely. Very, very good. Uh, you kind of touched on it with uh, their process of working through the pandemic. Uh, so what was it like on your end being a sales rep uh, working through the pandemic? And now that uh, we're kind of coming out of it, uh, how do you balance your work-life balance when things are operating normally? Mm, uh, good question. Um, the well, um, work-life balance when things are operating normally is a non-factor, since there really is not a balance. To be honest, um, when I first entered into this tier, was asking about that. Said, "Yeah, so what's the work-life balance like? And you know, how many hours a week and sort of things?" And somebody very levelly just said, "This is more of a lifestyle sort of job, uh, which in some situations can be." a way to get around saying you're going to be overworked and underpaid. But depending on the role that you have, um, whether it's in beer, whether it's in concert promotion or any of the things that are 
really ancillary to a lot of the things that are on this table. Um, you have to love it. And if you don't, uh, then you're going to be thinking a lot more about how that balance is wrong as opposed to how you can be more involved, more thoughtful, uh, a better partner to all the people who are around you. Um, and that doesn't entail just the, the beer itself since it's great, sure. Uh, but there's a lot of bad beer also out there and there's a lot of bad beer culture out there. Uh, so it can be also then very specific to the kind of people who are, um, rowing in the same direction, so to speak. And, uh, that's why it's such a pleasure to, to meet people like Hammerheart and support them. If they even never come back to Chicago, I'm still happy for them to be on this table here because I respect what they do. And, um, here with like-minded people, it's, uh, it's that sort of community that, um, grows outside of the glass. Mm -hmm. Um, during pandemic time, uh, the short answer is that it was unpleasant. Uh, <laughs> but I do, I do have to acknowledge that there was still work to be done. Uh, I know a lot of people who were laid off furloughed still don't have those jobs back. Um, so to have something to do and pivot and handle some other roles than I was usually used to uh, gave some different perspective and helped really cement how fortunate I've been thus far to meet, meet the people that I've met, um, traveled where I have, tasted what I have, learned what I have. Uh, whereas there are a lot of people who might be very content and very happy and very good about, say, managing their core 60 off-premise accounts and executing to the absolute T on every sort of national program. And that's hard. It is demanding work that I don't have the brain space for. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a good reminder that uh, it's more of this side of things that I find more engaging. Uh, during the shutdown proper, it certainly did afford more time to work on some personal projects that had been put to the side. Um, and it also clarified a little more, uh, as maybe did for, for the two of you, um, where you really want to be putting those efforts into. And that's something I haven't maybe done as thoughtfully as I should since it was still out there every day uh, and didn't have as much time to just really cocoon inward and figure out how deep and how many layers I wanted to molt off before I came back out of my chrysalis, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But it still sounds like you did find that time to make those things become a reality. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with wintering and mm. also uh, Karen as well? Sure. Oh, that uh, Spawn is, that is delightful. I just <laughs> had a first sip on that one. Um, wintering uh, has not been active during shutdown. Our most recent output would have been prior there too. Um, that project first started, I think maybe 10 years ago after we tried to do a live side project uh, for a band called The Living Fields. There were a couple of members who were here, a couple of members who were elsewhere. Um, us being us, it ended up just being yet another side project and yet another studio project. And uh, we released a, a full length, um, when even was this, 2018, 2019, uh, called Darkness Driving Darkness that is creaky old school death metal, a lot of influences from Morgoth and um, some bolt thrower, grave, dismember, that sort of thing. Uh, and the core two members of that project who would have been Jason Muxlow on guitars and myself. Uh, we'd been through some of the bigger studio rigmaroles uh, with the Living Fields, working with Candlelight. And for this project, uh, we wanted to just keep it pretty DIY and not have to worry about shopping around too much. And if we play some shows, we play some shows. And uh, as it ended up, again, that was just a studio piece. And uh, we'd like to um, take that take that back up at some point. But uh, then uh, Jason up and moved to Texas, where he's been active in some bands. 
Um, so that gave me a little more time to pivot back towards Karen, which had been my my own solo project, um, starting up a similar time frame when I'd started initially working with the Living Fields, uh, wanting to do a bit of a blend of some acoustic work, uh, some folk inspiration, some doom, uh, some kind of broadly speaking dark metal pagan vibes. And uh, yeah, I'd done a couple of EPs that were mostly mine, uh, but with some session performers since there were certain vocal registers that I couldn't reach. And uh, with the more recent output, wanted to have more authentic performances from capable drummers as opposed to me just doing bleep bloop on a, on a, on a keyboard. Mm-hmm. And um, when I started working with Glantz, uh, realized that Chicago is just such a vast space to enter into that if I were to try to do it right, particularly in the on-premise world where it's a lot of, a lot of after hours and a lot of relationship building, uh, it would have been difficult to really maintain a full-time commitment to music mm-hmm. while also trying to get where I wanted to get and um, not necessarily ladder climb, but to uh, be in these conversations and um, learn as much as I wanted to learn. I uh, didn't think that doing music full-time or even part-time, frankly, was, was very feasible. Um, so during shutdown, uh, did have more time to figure out, all right, time to just buck up and get an audio interface and do some home recording, demo out this record that you've had written for the last seven years, and uh, yeah, really reorient on, if not a lot of key priorities that had been put aside, at least that one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that record is largely demoed out, and uh, actually something I've talked with, with Austin a bit about, and perhaps we'll brainstorm some further uh it's at the point where it's uh yeah that's good enough for a demo take but the next big step is is this good enough for the final take mm-hmm. and that takes obviously a lot more time it does it takes significantly more time i think it's uh it's interesting that you realized pretty early on without even dipping your full foot in how much goes into doing music full time and realizing Oof. the amount of effort you need to put in i feel like that's there are bands who are full time air quotes people yeah, right, um, right. who don't even realize <laughs> that they're not putting in enough effort. They're not putting in enough time, but they're they're doing it full time. And it's just the stagnant yeah. Uh, yeah. position that they're in and running to stay exactly where they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with doing music full time. Uh, if your goal is that something that you're not really working towards, then you're kind of just hindering yourself. So it's true. It's interesting that, you know, you kind of realize out of the gate, you're like, this is what I want to do. This is the amount of effort that needs to go mm-hmm. in. And like, I, I think something that had helped cat- catalyze that further was uh, my undergraduate study was in music business and did journalism. Uh, that's when Alexi and I met was back in the photo pits of the mid aughts thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I respect a lot how you really took the bull by the horn, so to speak, and uh, diligently carved out a space for yourself there. Uh, whereas I did some journalism and interning at Downbeat magazine and um, worked in music products and with instruments and such. Uh, but at that point, I inter- interviewed enough bands, some of whom were legends, uh, where it was clear that for a lot of them, it was still a pretty hard, hard existence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and not that... Um, haven't taken some difficult roads myself also, but I also wanted to build up a bit of a bit more security than I saw for a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I really hope that 
the American cultural model can support the arts a little more robustly as it does in, in Sweden or other parts of Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was first playing with my cousin's band over there, uh, he had rehearsal space and was pretty much broke. So I'm trying to put these pieces together of how do you have this really nice <laughs> space and you can go buy strings every other week and, but we're just eating crackers at home. What is, how does this work? <laughs> And he said, yeah, well, if you can just prove to the government that you have a band and you're rehearsing, they'll pay for that mm-hmm. and they'll support you in that. And um, it's borne out in so much of the, the music that's that's come from there and um, a lot of the artists that you've worked with um, dating back to pretty much the very beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Coming from there. It made, uh, it made a big difference for those musicians that were starting out, whether it was the subsidized rehearsal spaces or the... Uh, music lessons that they could take in yep. in substitution of taking uh, a class. I mean, there was a lot of opportunities for people to pursue music and to pursue something mm-hmm. that they enjoyed, which is really important at that kind of age to yep. feel as though you have support, not just from your family and people that you're related to and that you're friendly with or maybe that you play with, but also from something kind of larger right. mm-hmm. as well. It shows um, you the industry. It's not yes. just being a musician, it's also being a producer. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's uh, all facets of that equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that uh, having that kind of sustained involvement uh, allows for people who may not make it as musicians, which is, you know, the percentage that do is a relatively small, uh, small bit, uh, even depending on how lax your interpretation of what making it is, is still Mm. relatively small. And so for people to have support allows them to explore different things like, uh, what you did with, uh, with writing and photographing, Mm. you know, being able to be involved in the scene in general, uh, and having a little bit of, uh, support for that, uh, at least for the musicians supports these other, uh, sort of, uh, ancillary, components of what makes that a thing. And so that's kind of why places like Sweden or Finland uh, are, have monolithic stature or did in that time in comparison to the number of people that lived in those places. Mm-hmm. In terms of musicians or? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, looking Not at the charts. infrastructure. I mean, there were two <laughs> magazines there. Sure, there was sure. you know a couple yeah. of zines and it was all <laughs> conflicted as to whether we should do things in English or Swedish. So... <laughs> Which is still uh, still a thing, but you take that into proportion of the number of people mm. that live there. Uh, like those maps the, of metal bands per capita. Yeah, yeah. Sort of no, and, it, and the reach, the the reach. Also that. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, I think Sweden has a great export of music as a whole, not just metal, you know. And I think it comes down to that infrastructure that they have in place for sure. What's his name? Max the Matrix or something? Is the one who's written so many of those songs for Britney Spears and oh, uh, Max Martin. Max yes. Martin, yeah. <laughs> um, and then a uh, chap who wrote a uh, soundtrack for um, Black Panther, mm-hmm. Jordan Ludwigson, also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's metal and it's all these different things. Yeah, and and I think that even for people that are doing uh, very inaccessible forms of music they get support as well. Mm, and right. that's a that's a really kind of important thing because th- there aren't, you know, a hundred people that are ready to go see experimental freeform jazz on a Tuesday night 
in Lynn shopping, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Um, unless they have a really big family. <laughs> so it's and important. Even then, and it, even then probably not. <laughs> they're being dragged by the collar for sure. Yeah. So, you know, you need that, like that, that wouldn't exist mm-hmm. if it weren't mm-hmm. for that in the aughts. I think maybe today it's a, a little bit different because technology is a little bit more of a leveler, uh, and still, there's yeah. still visibility you can get, but the performative aspect for that, uh, seemingly random example, uh, performance is actually an important part of mm-hmm. that. And so without the support, those things may die and, you know, music, uh, can't lose these important limbs because someone may go see that and then have an opportunity to think about things a little bit differently. Again, getting back to, um, experiences And I think the music export side itself is actually important because then you're supporting people that can have a better opportunity at becoming sustainable on the road. Like that just doesn't happen magically. There's some investment that needs to occur on the front end in order to create the opportunity, whether it is to go to Germany or whether it is to go to the U.S. or to go to... Uh, Japan or Korea, wherever, you know, your audience uh, dictates that you go. So you need something uh, to get off the ground there. And then after a certain point, something tangible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like either you keep doing it and you keep losing money because you clearly love it or you go, you keep doing it and you find a way to make it work somehow. I think Mm -hmm. that also does have actually quite a bit of overlap with the beer world in that one of the things that brought me to it from music is that you way I phrase that you can't download a beer, whereas you can clearly do I that. I love that phrase. <laughs> so much with music, of course. Uh, and it, it makes it hard to, as much as you might love to succeed in music, if you don't have that sort of supportive infrastructure, then yeah, you're going to going to struggle. Whereas with beer, even if you have a niche audience, um, say it's Hammerheart, or uh, I was a week ago down visiting Scratch in St. Louis, those are niche experiences, but you also can have a pretty hardcore fan base. And it's easier to have a niche hardcore fan base that supports you in beer uh, than it is in music. Because even if you do have that niche hardcore support in music, there's still going to be a significant portion of people who are just not paying to consume what you do. Whereas in beer, mm, good luck. Uh, maybe you'll get mm-hmm. some good hospitality when you go there. There is indeed that performative aspect of what is the taproom space like? What is the natural space like? What do the labels look like? But fundamentally, to participate, you're going to have to put some skin in the game, so to speak. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. You work as a salesperson for Lewis Glunz, a beer distributor here in Chicago. I am a recovering beer buyer. So <laughs> I'm kind of curious. Bless you, child. Yeah, uh, you know, as to what you're seeing in the world of beverage buyers, because mm-hmm. I think that for, and you have an interesting perspective because you look after uh, you know places of note in Chicago on the on-premise side specifically, mm-hmm. and you have actually, as a result of the pandemic, I'm assuming your experience broadened pretty quickly mm-hmm. uh, because of layoffs that occurred. And so I'm kind of curious as to what you're seeing now and if what you're seeing in these like key accounts in Chicago that have a that are on-premise focused if they match what we're seeing in the off-premise world? 
what are some of the things that you most particularly see in the off-premise sure. world? Sure. So if we think of off-premise world, I define that as what we see in IRI and Nielsen data. Okay. So that would be cool. your uh, seltzers and mm-hmm. things that are like eating away at market share mm-hmm. uh, from that perspective. And then um, uh, like can release culture and yep. things that uh, are like maybe brewery only and then go into distribution, but mm-hmm. that are focused because the brewery may be more profitable selling products mm-hmm. that way as opposed to putting mm-hmm. it in kegs. It, there are various tentacles to that question, I suppose. Uh, that was a big question. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sure. No, that's all right. Uh, we, can, we can riff on that for a while. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I've seen is that much as we spoke about with personal exploits, it allows for refocusing, repositioning, or just stripping away. Um, talk to a lot of people who say, you know, I used to pretend like I had something to do when my in-laws called and wanted me to come over. Now I just tell them, no, I'm fine staying at home. In the on and off-premise world, I see fewer people um, putting these window dressings around what they really want. And um, there are places that might be very powerful and notable in either the on or off-premise who used to try to talk more about culture and diversity and that could be in the diversity of their beer list or diversity of who they support or diversity of their staff. And now they're mostly saying, what makes me money? Or other places that kind of go the other direction and are digging in their heels saying, no, we've always been about being very thoughtful in our composition, uh, making sure we hire the right people, uh, providing the right experience, providing the smart, safe experience. Uh, and we're going to double down on that and do that even more so than we were before. Uh, so it's, I think it's made everybody more honest. Uh, and yet, while I say that, we still walk into and just see these mountains of seltzers. So I don't know if there's much that's very honest about seltzer. Uh, truly. Um, that was actually that was nice. good. That was a good, that was a good that was, one. It was not intended. That was not intended. Uh, but I'll take it. You can edit that part out. <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping that. I am keeping that. Let uh, me, uh, I want to, I'll draw some focus to the question. Sure. So when we look at uh, where where beer is heading in some way, inevitably seltzer is a component to what these people, what the manufacturers are making, and it's a component of what people are consuming in Mm -hmm. some way. You cannot, uh, we can't take that away in Mm -hmm. any way. And so my question is, and this is I suppose like a million dollar question is, are you seeing your accounts have interest in carrying seltzer on premise? And if so, in what way? Yes, uh, some much more recalcitrantly than others. Uh, there have been a few that said hard no, and then a handful of months later, I'd see a lot of samples behind the counter, and it's like, so what's what's uh, what's the story here? You you may be backing down off of that hill. And um, personally, I don't um, I don't drink a lot of seltzer. Um, let me rephrase that: I do not drink seltzer, uh, but I understand that it is a massive category that of course has become such a dominant component within the beer numbers that it's uh it's unavoidable and um there are always these trends um whether it's zima mike's hard lemonade hazy ipas west coast black ipas these things come and go and um, if this is what the drinking public wants you can only push back against that so much Mm -hmm. and i think some of the the retailers who were who were very wary of that um, take a place like Hopleaf uh, or Sheffields uh, that have always been these bastions of better beer 
uh, for them to then say, okay, well, we see so much call for this. How do we want to do it? Um, some people just say, let's give people what they want. We're not going to promote it. We're not going to try to advertise it. But if somebody calls for a white cloth, yeah, here it is. Then maybe next time around, we'll talk about a craft pilsner or a cider. And there are others who are saying, if we have to carry seltzer, let us do it in the most organic way that reflects our existing model. Um, so, for instance, at the Hopleaf, uh, their approach to it was, uh, how can we do this in a way that speaks to the locality that we prioritize, that speaks to the quality that we prioritize, and also the thoughtfulness of ingredient sourcing? And for them, the answer was Le Gros. Uh, Le Gros being very local to them, certified organic, um, and they said, yeah, this is something that's not everywhere. Um, it's not like somebody's going to walk in here, see uh, a white claw on the menu and say, all right, well, I guess we might as well just stayed in wherever other neighborhood we were that wasn't as much of a destination. And nothing against what white claws achieved. It's truly a totemic masterpiece of execution and marketing and all these things. Mm -hmm. But there are definitely those kinds of places that don't want that. And there then exists a tier of seltzer that can deliver. Acknowledging that there's some bias, I think Glunz uh, speaks to that a little better than some in that, sure, for certain territories, if you want a 24-ounce can of an 8% seltzer that tastes like wild berry made by PBR, I've got you covered. But uh, <laughs> there's also the seltzer world uh, that is the Legros or um, Seek Out made by Two Towns that is a little different than that it uses only fruit juices. Uh, same juices that they use in their ciders, they use in their seltzers. So it actually ends up being classified in a different category. Um, and thus we see these little tendrils spreading out. So it's not just an IPA, it's a hazy IPA, it's a New England IPA, it's a strong pale ale, it's a red IPA. Um, is it just a seltzer? No, it's all these rebrandings of what a vodka soda essentially is, mm -hmm. but doing it with a different sort of spin. And at that point, some of it's about quality, some of it is about just how do you identify as a brand and a person. And people approach that from both sides of the equation, the consumer and as well as a retailer. Um, I don't, I have not seen Seltzer click on draft. I think there are a few people who are making some bets on that. Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple of venues I've seen that be successful, like down on the Riverwalk. Uh, but for the most part, it seems to have stayed in its canned cage, which is fine for me. Mm -hmm. Do you think if <clears throat> seltzer breaks into draft lines that that's going to be an issue for craft brewers? Mm. If Mark Anthony breaks into draft <laughs> lines specifically. Well, I've seen enough enough craft brewers make seltzer and put them on draft for their tap rooms. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just where it stays, where it lands. I don't know that there's anything better about the draft experience and I think what a lot of them prefer is actually to be in cans because most seltzers don't have color or head. Um, mm -hmm. There's no uh, unique glass form. Here we are sipping spontaneous beer from a teku glass. What are we going to do with There's the no dedicated glassware type <laughs> for seltzer. Right. And there doesn't need to be because they've already put so much of their branding into the can. That's right. what people want to see. They want to put that can on the bar and then have everybody else look at that and say, oh, they're drinking that version, that's the one that I want. Mm -hmm. um, whereas beer, it's easier to pour a beautiful pink Lambic or uh, just a, a gorgeous Hefeweizen, and somebody says, oh, what is that? I want that. Mm -hmm. You don't have that experience with a clear carbonated thing that looks like you could essentially be drinking so soda water. Right. I wonder, too, like, 
obviously a lot of this uh, field grew off of the premise that it's healthier for you. It's only 100 calories, sure. right? Yep. And, uh, you know, as we've talked with other people before, we're shifting as a culture to be try and be healthier and healthier. It's just as... Uh, Are we really... I would say the younger generation is more uh, aware of what is healthy and what is unhealthy for them. And so maybe they don't make the, the healthiest choice all the time, but they're cognizant of what is and isn't healthy at this sure, point. Well phrased. And so I think for me, seeing that kind of awareness grow, is that going to hinder beer sales and promote si uh, seltzer sales? If people are really caring about the quality of what they're ingesting, I don't think seltzer is where they're going. Mm-hmm. They're doing that for well, calorie counting, sugar, things like that. Exactly. Uh, if people are really concerned about what is the true, um, better for you experience, then maybe that's where these organic seltzers are the next step, or the fruit juice based seltzers are the next step, instead of natural flavings. Here's the air quotes again, mm -hmm. uh, and carbonated grain alcohol. Um, perhaps then calorie counting or lower ABV is the first step in that better for you voyage. But honestly, I think it's healthier. Uh, maybe this is just my personal bias <laughs> to be drinking this unfiltered, unpasteurized salty and uh -huh. this spontaneous beer with uh, Texas grown fruit than it is to be kicking back a six pack of, of whatever seltzer it might be. Um, but that's also too just where I'm coming from is the kind of consumer that I am. I mean, I agree with you. I, I think there's nothing natural about natural flavorings, right? <laughs> and, you know, but, but we're trained as a society to think calories are the only thing that really matters sure. when it comes to health. And so when they see 100 calories, White Claw, Truly, all those companies, they're very they're very poignant in saying that's what it is. Whereas you get beer and it's just, you don't know what it is, but everyone can assume it's a lot more, right? Mm -hmm. There's just not that marketing tactic with beer, unless if you're talking Miller Lite or Coors Light yeah. or something like that. So I think that's going to be something that uh, the beer industry is going to have to find a point to like, combat seltzers mm. suffice to say there's always people that are trending toward low carb low cal low caloric intake diet wine sugar-free soda like all that and i think that these are just not really a uh alcohol type you can't really define these people by that's by a certain type of alcohol or a category really because it's a, a it's a health and lifestyle choice and so they're never going to be married to a particular category uh mm. anyways so if you're producing like a craft beverage you can't really count on those people nor can you really uh, try to jump into something that someone's already doing because you're probably too late. Too late, exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think to some degree this is also very culturally dependent uh, in that in the United States, in Scandinavia, certainly parts of it indeed, uh, alcohol has been not entirely unfairly saddled with the idea of any amount is a bad amount and that if you're drinking anything, it's just a matter of uh, the degree of badness. Uh, so in that sense... If somebody's saying, well, I'm already drinking, so it's not that good, I might as well go for the low-calorie option or uh, the low-carb option, they're not thinking about how there are potential, uh, I don't want to say aggressive benefits, but at least it can be part of a wholesome existence. 
Uh, and this is actually rather apropos of the beer that we just opened, um, the Stickel Goldkoi. Uh, I love this brewery. Uh, I've been there three times, I think. And um, within the the German drinking culture, certainly there are, every drinking culture has its abuses, and I don't want to normalize that. But in the history of German drinking, there's been a much more extant thread of how beer comes from wholesome ingredients. Uh, a lot of these people living on the land close by to where it's produced, uh, thinking about the kind of barley sources that they were using, um, being thoughtful about even the kind of carbonation, uh, whether it's natural carbonation versus forced carbonation, uh, the water source, and that all of these components can be uh, something contributing to the so-called liquid bread, and that um, consuming it in um, mostly moderation uh, is a both acknowledgement of your place, your time, and um, can be sort of part of this complete breakfast, as they say. Um, so uh, I do think that there is there is a way in which there can be a more respectful next step about how people think about how they're drinking better for you, uh, whether that's drinking non-pasteurized beers, a lot of the B vitamins and other sorts of um, benefits that can be um, extrapolated, I don't wanna say scientifically proven uh, <laughs> across the board, I'm not trying to articulate that. But I just don't see how there can't be something better about what we've had here versus some of what we've been talking about. And again, that's just my, my personal bias. But Do you think that people who are chase or people, production uh, producers that are producers that are doing things like making seltzers out of sour with sour cultures from barrels and attempting to approach things from that natural angle? And you and I have talked about how mm-hmm. uh, naturally occurring yeast and localized yeast uh, could potentially be something that uh, is a something that people look for in beer mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. like a long term future. Do you think that there is value in applying that sort of higher end uh, premiumized or premium component to beer production and value that producers see there? to the locale uh, segment? Locale, maybe. Um, take Jester King, for instance. One of my favorite beers of theirs is La Petite France. Uh, 2.8% table beer. Maybe I got that percentage wrong. Sorry, Jeff, if that's the case. Uh, but it is has been so much of their focus is re-fermented dryness, sometimes even below the point of the gravity of water, and focus on modest levels of alcohol. And that, in combination with... Um, a great aesthetic, great people, great space, and also just really tasty beer mm-hmm. can clearly demonstrate that, yeah, there's going to be a distinct category who wants to get all the enjoyment, all the participation, all the cultural, the thoughtfulness without having to sacrifice on the experience of, of the flavor. Uh, and uh, they do that masterfully well. Uh, I don't know that approaching it from the specific locale um, market or segment is really going to win you a lot of accolades because almost by describing it as locale, you're describing it as diet. You're describing it as somehow lesser than the full experience. Sure. Let me rephrase my question then. So in the Venn diagram here of Mm. premiumization (laughs) Mm -hmm. and of health conscious drinking or trying to drink less shitty for yourself. <laughs> there we go. Is is there an overlap there? I would hope so. Um, I suppose I haven't really thought about that too distinctly. Maybe in part I do it implicitly just based on 
what I try to recommend to people. Um, things that I think are good, things that I think will sell, things that I think are the overlap of those pieces, but also things that are just better or make you feel as though you're contributing to something, but also if you wake up and you've been to an event with somebody and you've had six beers here versus an event with this person they've had six beers there, sometimes you feel pretty different. And mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot that is baked into that pie, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, I wish I wish them luck, whoever tries to fight those those large conglomerates in that in that world. And I honestly think that a lot of them are not explicitly trying to do that. It's not like Jester King or Scratch having visited them, whatever it was. Um, or uh, Hammerheart, they make a lot of dry beers. I don't think they're saying this because we want to do this for the better for your category. Uh, it's a lot of what they've experienced, what they've done, and um, just finding that the way that excess sugars or unfermentables produce either beer that's just not as tasty or leaves you feeling less um, uh, satisfied in the long experience. And mm -hmm. just too much sugar left behind can, well, it's discussion about, I suppose, some different styles and... <laughs> But anyway, yeah, this may be a different topic. You can drink beer and it can be less shitty for you, I think sure. is the moral of the story here. Yes. Yeah, can we get that yes. on the next uh, Heavy Hops t-shirt? Yeah. That's, that's on the back <laughs> of the shirt. It'll be right on the back of the shirt. Yeah, right there with morbid molds. I just... Uh, <laughs> so a big thing happened in Chicago recently when Hop Butcher and Half Acre mm. announced that... Uh, Hop Butcher, a contract brewer in Chicago, who if you're not located here, you could probably imagine based on their name roughly what they're going to be producing. They're a contract producer and that they had acquired Half Acre's original location uh, in Chicago. And I'm assuming that they're going to treat it as sort of a turnkey scenario uh, where they can move in and begin producing and have all of the facilities that you need to roll out uh, a production facility with on-premise capabilities relatively quickly. For you, Samu, as someone who's been involved in beer in Chicago for a little while, and you've specifically spent a lot of time in that neighborhood mm. on your beat, yeah. uh, how, do you, uh, how do you sort of uh, take that as a first, as sort of a beer consumer? Sign of the times is the story writ short there. I think uh, it's a great space. Um, there's so much history that's gone through that room. A lot of uh, phenomenal talent on all sides of the spectrum. But I, and I don't know intimately um, uh, people involved in the process, so I can't speak too closely to it, but um, both from speaking to people in the neighborhood and seeing a lot of the sentiments shared around, um, getting a sense that much of the space might be very workable and suiting, suitable for them. I think a lot of it, too, is the look that is generated from that. Half Acre having been one of the first flags planted in Chicago craft beer, at least in the modern sense, post Goose Island and Beta Bredal and things like that. Um, that Half Acre Revolution and a couple others were some of the leading edge. And for a brewery like Hop Butcher to be assuming that... Uh, that space is uh, is a very deliberate message that I think that they're sending. And uh, I don't know truly how much on-premise they're intending to roll out from that space. They seem to have been so successful off-premise. And the kind of drinker, I think, there is a difference between the kind of drinker who's looking for most of those styles versus the person who's spending more of their time on-premise. 
Uh, I don't see explicitly those same kinds of styles being the very rich double draw hop double IPAs, not always, but uh, more frequently before containing lactose, just the richness and the bigness uh, on the IPAs or the stouts. Uh, I see those styles represented on premise, but not to the same extent that I see them gobbled up in the off premise. And they've carved out such a remarkably effective business model for themselves, prioritizing off premise. Um, who knows, maybe this is the way in which they try to turn the corner and really open the on-premise, but once you have that clicking in the off-premise, um, I would be a little surprised to see them really try to go out there and get a lot of handles. Maybe I'm wrong, and it could be an education thing for a lot of people who are in that neighborhood who maybe haven't seen as much uh, Hot Butcher. I talk to a lot of on-premise buyers who uh, don't know some of the bigger hyped names in the off-premise world, which admittedly, too, is somewhat driven by some of the suburban breweries. And... Uh, a lot of the participants in those discussion spheres, uh, at least online, tend to be a little bit more suburban-based. So some breweries like Phase 3, more um, microphone, Hot Butcher. Uh, I, I don't think it's explicitly or entirely coincidence that a lot of them are more suburban-based. If that makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's a, another interesting component to what you said is that when you... Uh, begin to engage in your own space in some way. So if they were to start serving their beers in that tap room, uh, you have to serve the public. Mm -hmm. You have to serve anyone that walks in. And so you see a lot of breweries that start with a particular focus over time that shifts into pleasing a lot of other people because in a small way you have to do that when they show up and Mm -hmm. Whether that's uh, Jester King making double dry hopped IPAs and lagers. In cans. In cans. Uh, That can be our sole example because that's good (laughs) enough based on our conversation. (laughs) Um, Then you have to contend with a, oh, is this just something that we do here? Or Mm -hmm. is it something that we then export outside of our four walls? So there's like a whole mess of layers to have to negotiate in some way, let alone the complications of... Uh, taking a well, a presumably well operating contracting operation mm. and bring it into a place. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I mean, that's just almost an entire other conversation we can have, but the, the notion of own premise, on premise, selling to bars and restaurants, off premise, selling so you can drink at home, own premise being the space wherein uh, breweries take care of their own and are selling to consumers who are coming to visit them at their own, their own tap room or their own restaurant. Uh, I frequently find that the best-selling item in the own premise is not the best-selling item in market. Um, And that does make sense, too, because often when you're going to the restaurants or to the bar, what sells a lot is the lightest thing on the menu. Uh, Might be Mm -hmm. a lager, might be a Kirsch, might be a Blondale, and that doesn't necessarily stand out on the shelf to the same degree as something that's been a hyped-up release. But if somebody's belling up to the bar and wants to have a few, um, they might not necessarily be doing that with a $12 snifter so much as the $5 pint. Mm-hmm. Um, the, one of the other challenges, I suppose, that comes out of that conversation is how people learn to re-engage with the world after this last year and a half. The sort of lessons that they learned from staying at home this period of time, the habits that they might have formed or broken, uh, whether they moved, if they left the cities, um, and how they then decide where they want to re-engage, where they're investing, and 
what kind of communities they really want to build. Do they build that through going to the bar? Do they build that through some online form that they found? Um, do they go out to a farm and just completely abandon the industry? That's something we haven't touched on too, just the, the labor situation in the industry and um, where work is, where the workers are, why there are not as many of them as people would like there to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are definitely some, some complicated facets to that. And as, as much as it is a tricky uh, nut to crack about who's coming back and why they're coming back, uh, there's so much that remains very unscrutable about, about the contemporary consumer that a lot of people are just throwing up their hands and saying, I don't know, I'm just going to wait it out and see what happens, do our best. Mm-hmm. And I don't have an answer to that. Uh, some places that I've visited that you would think you'd be going one way, it's going the opposite, um, and then the other way around, and then as things have begun to come back a little bit towards normal-ish, or whatever that so-called new normal is, it's harder to then uh, draw a consistent thread about who's successful now versus who was successful at this point last May. There's not as much overlap as I would have thought. Mm. I think, you know, if we want to dive into who's successful now post-pandemic and the on-premise sense, I think you're going to be looking at the people who have had and have integrity in what they're doing. And by that, I mean, there's an actual passion behind the place because in my experience with the places, at least that I've worked and know owners, the people who have the integrity and passion behind what they're doing, it's not, they're not doing it for the sole purpose of profits. And so we're at this point of reckoning for a lot of uh, restaurant laborers where they're in demand mm-hmm. yeah. a- and the people I know at least recognize that and they're not going to go back to a place where they don't get health insurance, where they're working for the bare minimum, mm-hmm. scraping by. They're not, they're not accepting that anymore. And so they're still, they want to go back to the industry. They like it, but why go back to something that treated you so poorly? Right. I, in some senses, one could say it's a bit of an abusive relationship uh, mm-hmm. in a macro sense. And some of that, I'd be curious to, to learn more about what's happening in some societies that are uh, non-tip based and that have more robust public health care structures. Uh, the extent to which I've seen the service industry just sharing all these uh, kind of masochistic memes about how they do what they do, why they do what they do. <laughs> uh, I know that exists in almost any sort of any sort of space, but... Uh, it is very much a reckoning that I think has been spurred on by the examples set by um, some other industries that um, this one has now been jolted very vigorously out of its status quo. And mm-hmm. it's it's certainly high time for that to be more um, more rigorously analyzed. One would hope that it didn't have to necessarily come with all these other macro levels of stressors. Right. Because if you're trying to talk to somebody about how you can pay them a better living wage, but you've had you've been in arrears on your rent for the last year and you still aren't at full capacity and don't mm-hmm. know who's vaccinated or who's not, whatever that is. It makes it a hard time to really invest in that conversation with your staff. But it's mm-hmm. now more important than other, uh, more important than ever rather to, to do that. I think so. And uh, we talked with Derek over at Poly G's a while last year, actually on the episode. And uh, even then he had a pretty firm stance on not opening up until a, all the staff was vaccinated and Mm -hmm. B here's the really important thing. Even if they were all vaccinated, if they weren't comfortable enough to come back, Mm -hmm. he was still going to continue doing the takeout window. Mm -hmm. And so being able to be an owner and put yourself in a position where granted, 
I'm glad it worked out for him. Like, you know, he's able to keep his spot and not a lot of restaurants are able to do that where they can shift to a takeout form. Like pizza's just so easy to do that with. Mm. But, you know, being able to do that, but then also fully knowing I could just hire a new staff and open my dining room and make more money, but choosing not to do that and keep his staff. And that is a choice that I think as a business owner, he made that stance and he stood by it. And I commend him for that. Very much so. You know, I think the restaurant industry is a very interesting industry in the fact that it is, to me, a relic of the industrial revolution in a sense, because the owners have had all the power for so long. The wages are sub minimum wage. There's no breaks. There's no health insurance. You're kept, your hours are kept below so that you physically cannot even attempt to get health insurance unless if you're in management. But even then, most restaurants don't want to pay you a lot for management positions. And so it's just, I mean, anyone who wants to go back to it or is in it now, like, I just want to say this is your time to fucking push for what you want and what you think is right, yeah. you know? Yeah. I wish that there were more, well said, I, I wish that there were more, um, proprietors who had had the resources to really stick that out because I think there are a lot of people who share that vision who have that sort of priority set but maybe we're already struggling before the mm-hmm. shutdown and this just pushed it over the edge um, places true. that created great space had great regulars um, great staffs and tried to take care of those people and to, to, to nourish them and give them some place that they wanted to come back to but just through dynamics of rent or changing neighborhoods or um, inability to get certain loans mm-hmm. made it that much more difficult for them to try to ride it out. And I don't think we'll really see the full reckoning of that for probably years. Maybe? I would I would say so. And yeah, I mean, a lot of it does come down. I, I'm sure there's a lot of owners who, like you said, would like to be in a position to do that. And they just don't have the financial capital or backing to mm-hmm. be fair in that way. But at what point do you blame the owner and do you blame local governance? Because mm-hmm. that's where your rent gets set based off of local governance and taxes because then the landlord of that place has to pay those taxes sure, which sure. they base the rent on and so on and so forth so you know what really this issue stems from all the way up mm. and so where where do you what do we do as a society to try and make things more fair it's i like the uh 15 minimum wage argument but at the same time if you only do that and you don't offset that with the the other costs that owners bear and proprietors bear it is going to have a huge reckoning not only for the restaurant industry but a bunch of industries that's that's a good point i think certainly can go all the way up but at the same time i think there are a couple other floors you can stop on along the way and that uh segues somewhat nicely into the beer that i uh last beer that i have uh which is the things we don't say um which is a beer that's did not come from the restaurateur's side. This came from the producer's side. Mm-hmm. And there's so much of an overlap, of course, between this. And there are, again, also so many restaurateurs out there who have been great partners to their community, uh, who have been supportive and who've bent over backwards in every possible way to do the right thing by their people and for their people. I don't want to demonize that tier at all. Mm-hmm. But um, in this epoch, uh, it was more of, I think, the uh, the supplier side, uh, the breweries that were being a little more specific about 
um, the notion of uh, self-care and employee care, uh, and in part perhaps because it's because proportionally maybe they had fewer people who were based on that tipped wage. Again, I'm no expert in that tier, and I could be speaking way out of line in that regard. Uh, and I have been very pleased to see the number of, of restaurateurs who've really supported initiatives for mental health and charities and collaborated on events over the years. And it's always been a very, very symbiotic relationship. I don't want to make sure, I want to be sure that I'm not painting this as an antagonistic portrait. Um, but I think there is still a very distinct line to be drawn between saying, well, that's just the way it is. And no, how do we, how do we really change this? Mm-hmm. And uh, inspired in part by seeing what happened with the Me Too movement and uh, a lot of other things going on, recent shakeups that I think can talk about another time um, that have happened in even just the last few weeks uh, about conduct in the industry uh, is all part and parcel with the, uh, the slogan here, this things we don't say, uh, which I'm not deeply close to, so I don't wanna, wanna say that I know the most about it, but uh, for people who may not know, um, it was a uh, international, I think, at this point, collaboration with Hope for the Day, uh, whose slogan is "It's okay not to be okay," talking about mental health, uh, suicide prevention, and awareness, and just the broader idea of take care of yourself. Uh, it started, I think, in a much more uh, specific sort of context, but as things have happened in the last several years, and the conversation has become broadened to incorporate some of the things we're talking about now, uh, that idea of what are we not talking about and how can we talk about that to support um, not only these very localized kinds of concerns, but the broader idea of how do you uh, how do you isolate and identify where your struggles are and then be open about them? And I hope that that's one thing that, despite in this last year, people tend to have become more shut in, more isolated, but as I said earlier, also more sincere and thus perhaps more confident in being candid about saying, you know, I just... I'm not ready for that. I, my headspace isn't there. I can't do that. Uh, or I would like to, but this is what I need to do that. And can we work on that together? Mm-hmm. Should we try it out? Sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> indeed. Uh, also, kudos. Uh, Eagle Park, I think, was one of the primary components of really starting this up. There were some key participants here. Um, I came to know about it um, through Old Irving, and this is indeed the one that we're tasting. Um, Trevor Rose Hamblin there is one of the uh, one of the founders and the brewmaster, and he introduced me to Joel Frieders of Hope for the Day at some point last year when we were all having uh, a conversation about where this this shutdown has put people and where their their minds are at and what their priorities are. And uh, um, I don't know Joel well, uh, but in my experiences, he's been a truly... Um, a lightning rod of a personality to take an idea like this and um, bring it to a bit of a broader a broader forefront. And Trevor also, too, has become a, uh, a good friend who's uh, invested a lot of his time and efforts in, in celebrating that cause, too. And, um, yeah, I, I commend both of them for really trying to be um, bellwethers in that, that space of uh, being more open and just better for people. Uh, better for you. <laughs> <laughs> the seltzer of mental health. <laughs> Absolutely. I have one question. True. Is there lactose in this? There is not. Okay. Yeah. I think there has been in some expressions. Uh, there was a general base recipe that was provided. Uh, Malt Europe was also uh, collaborated on here, helping 
uh, along with a couple of others, uh, providing some of the raw ingredients at some specific rate. Again, I'm not the brewer here, so I, I don't know. But um, there was a good amount of range of interpretation that people could use. Um, and aside from that, it was incorporating the same label and providing a lot of information for hotlines that people can call uh, mm-hmm. for a variety of different concerns that they might have. A lot of this just based on on mental health, but uh, that manifests in a lot of different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that uh, thinking about a project like this or the Black is Beautiful project, uh, which came about last year, uh, are the kinds of right sorts of collaborations that would Mm. love to see more of Mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that a lot of the collaborations of years past of people that normally don't get to see each other making some wild ass beer and uh, that they would never make again uh, is fun and interesting, but it's not uh, necessarily new. And I think in a certain way, you want a collaboration to be productive. Uh, The collaborations have lost meaning in a certain way, I think, from being a celebration of friendship to being more of a like a transactional model profit Mm -hmm. marketing tool. Uh, And I say that as someone who's uh, made collaboration beers and makes one uh, actively. And while that's not my intention, I can't deny that uh, there are a lot of people that do make them in that way that are like that. And Mm -hmm. so it's one of these things where I'm happy that there is a charitable component to this and that there is an awareness component to it that's Mm -hmm. beyond just... Uh, people who are like-minded making things together that other people who are like-minded can enjoy. Mm-hmm. There is something to be said for people who are like-minded just saying, hey, let's have a brew day and uh, throw some throw some hops and grains together, take a couple of photos, and then go knock back a few in a tap room. I, I won't fault that. But uh, there is indeed an opportunity to really cross-pollinate some different brain spaces and mm-hmm. uh, move something forward somewhere. Uh, I mean, at this point, you've done how many collaborations? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, sort of the, the open-eyed yeah. stare of yeah. Uh, yeah, counting, I don't, counting, I, counting. Like ten or so, maybe. Uh, and what do you get out of that? From from number one through number ten. Uh, even this Saturday, right? Is the is the empty bottle? Right? Yeah. With, so with Metro. I think for uh, Humbucker is very much like a story-driven uh, collaboration in some way. So for uh, for uh, for me, that beer is in a way. Uh, a celebration of times traveling in Scandinavia and finding myself and finding my own journey through beverage and mm-hmm. the, Dort- the Dortmunder style lager, Hala Norland's Gold, uh, was that, <laughs> and that lined up, uh, you know, well for them as far as uh, looking for a style of beer to incorporate. So there is like a, a marketing component to it, um, and it. Uh, ended up kind of becoming a, a celebration of, uh, yeah, it's weird to say a celebration of I, you, <laughs> but yeah. of myself, but well, it, it, it's, uh, no I, I think it's a celebration of friendship and it's a celebration of, um, uh, sort of, of like-mindedness. So mm-hmm. I think that for a lot of the collaborations that, uh, that I've, created they typically revolve around an event and the idea of them is to get people that are engaging in the heavy music that i do uh 
my job, my job with making those collaborations is to get these people aware of beverages that aren't light lager. That's mm. really how I kind of look at it in some way. So I want to tie it into the thought behind who makes it and the thought behind what the recipe is and what the sort of story is and how it uh, connects conceptually to the festival, to the artwork for it. Um, so it, I view it as a, uh, you know, sort of introduction for people. I don't really take my audience for granted. I assume that I assume for a lot of them that they may not be very heavy craft beer drinkers. They may have like a peripheral awareness of what it is, mm -hmm. but I make no assumption that they know a lot about it. And so I view it as an opportunity to share uh, something with them. And for the humbucker, it's a great opportunity to share a craft lager with them. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of, as I was mentioning, like collaborations of the past, uh, like I think of the cross Atlantic collaborations as being wild and wacky beers. And now we're seeing collaborations take on uh, popular styles or sort of whether it's like a transactional model, transactional uh, sort of relationships between brand uh, between brands or uh, hopefully something that can be more of like a parallel collaboration, like what we've seen with Maine and 1% for the planet, right. where mm -hmm. things can kind of grow together. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of interesting collaborations that are out there, but you don't want to collaborate necessarily just for the sake of having a collaboration. Uh, and, and yeah, that's where I wanted to say is that I think the beauty of a collaboration is it gives you as a part collaborator, a chance to show your style or what you do, give your culture to another culture. It's a, it's a, a cross pollination of cultures, right? And when you go into this with just the, um, the point of monetization, you kind of lose that aspect that, and going back to the black is beautiful and the, uh, things we don't say beer, these are opportunities collaborations to spread a message that you would normally get with a collaboration beer, right? And so I think it is this new wave of collaboration where it might not just be two breweries coming together, but a bunch of breweries mm -hmm. collectively coming together to spread a message of like a progressive message in a sense. And I think that that should be the future of collaboration at this point, because as you mentioned before, we're, we're getting to this point where it almost seems like everything has been done. I still think there is more that can be done between two breweries for sure. But moving forward, I think, especially with everything coming to light in the craft beer industry, I think uh, spreading a collective message uh, would be a much better way to spend resources. Do you think that it is working? I have many mixed feelings because... A, I think the Black Lives Matter movement is an amazing movement that started after the death of George Floyd, right? Mm -hmm. I think there were great strides being made all last year, and we are now at this point where it's faded. That, that message is just faded from people's minds. And I don't know how much you can push something into people's faces that it, it, it sucks. People don't care. Who are people at this point? Because uh, when I say people, I talk the vast majority of America. You go outside mm -hmm. a city, you go to rural America, people just don't care. 
about the Black Lives Matter movement or things Black is Beautiful or things we don't say or any of these stuff. Yeah, I think so. So then how much are we just sitting here in a literal echo chamber (laughs) versus making a significant impact? I mean, that's that's up to maybe I'm looking at it in a nihilistic way, but I go out to the burbs pretty frequently because my parents live there and I just Mm -hmm. see these things that everything that the craft beer industry is having a reckoning with with sexism. It's you go out to the burbs and it's just no, it's not there. That mm. message is just being mocked, almost. I would and, I would hesitate to bring, paint too broad a brush with that. And I am painting a pretty broad brush, yeah. I know. In that, uh, I mentioned microphone earlier. They did, uh, with this Things We Don't Say beer, I think they, that, it was a four or five brewery mix pack that they coordinated and brought other people together and said, this is something that we believe in, and these are brews that we want to draw on some of the fan base from to say, pay attention to this. And that's definitely the suburbs. But I mm-hmm. take your point. Um, and then I suppose the question is, how do you connect the idea of the creator to the average consumer? And you can define, I guess, the average consumer as the the so-called suburbanite or something like that. I, I, I want to jump in on, before yeah, please, we jump into do. that, <laughs> when you look at most breweries in America, not all 8,900 of them are located in Chicago, New York, or L.A., Actually, most of them are located in suburban or rural areas mm-hmm. numerically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there, when you're talking about like what microphone does and the awareness that these places have for their community, whether their community is a thousand cows and five people or a thousand people and five cows, it's, <laughs> it's still a message that people are going to get to. And so um, I think that the, the brewers, if the brewers and the restaurants are actually more piped into things because of the community that those products serve generally. So mm-hmm. I think that they can make a difference. Uh, I, I think they start. Absolutely. Yeah, they definitely make us. They, they put an entry I think point. that, uh, that what, what I'm saying in short is that brewing and the ownership of brewing is not an urban thing in the United States. It's actually mostly suburban Mm -hmm. and rural because of the way that you use land and the fact that it is a manufacturing thing. And so there's a lot of potential that they do have. And I think that there are brewers that it's a mixed bag, even in Illinois. So you have brewers Mm -hmm. that are not interested in that stuff as much because a lot of different people are attracted to small business ownership. So, but I do think that uh, people have chosen that path because they had a shitty experience at another job and they wanted to start their own thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that those are actually people that can be good stewards of these kinds of messages. Mm -hmm. Unless the experience that they had was someplace where they felt they couldn't express their... Their shitty views, there yes. There we go, yes. yes. <laughs> but of, of some of the things that we're tasting here, for instance, uh, say Jester King or Hammer Hearts, uh, they're not in the center of an urban bustle and rustle. Uh, they're out on the land and can mm-hmm. take a take a stand and be very direct and forthright about what sort of culture you want to co- create and um, as a result have built followings and... and um, and fan bases and then become thought leaders in a sense each in their own way mm-hmm. uh just means it takes that much more time to to build that audience and mm-hmm. it's 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 not easy yeah 
the role then that either you have as podcasters or a concert mm-hmm. organizer, or I have um, as somebody in the kind of between space, we're in these between spaces. Um, that is something that I don't quite have a, a very, um, I haven't reconciled my grasp on that yet in that there is a responsibility to present, promote, support, all the things that are in that so-called book. Mm-hmm. But what then do you do? Uh, how do you tailor that to each of the spaces that you're working with? And then how do you do justice to both sides of that flow? Give everybody access to everything that makes sense. Don't be too much of a gatekeeper. But at the same time, try to render and represent your best understanding of those things that you have to work with. Uh, and that's, I suppose, a kind of a lifelong project, but also does have this ebb and flow within the, the currency of the moment. Um, and that's maybe, again, also a topic for another conversation. You have to own your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, sure. Well, for some people, I think that's easier than others and that there are people who um, do so because they know that it's profitable. Others who do so because they believe in it, regardless of whether it's profitable. Uh, others who do so because they just have fun with it. And there are these different levers to pull. And that is something that I think doesn't get a lot of play out in the broader world because it's it tends to exist behind the curtain, uh, as it should. I'm not saying that this necessarily is supposed to be sort of the glamour side of the, of the business. <laughs> well, I, I, this is interesting. I want to explore this. So for you... Samu, you work as a wholesaler. You are probably the definition of behind a curtain as far as people that don't work in production facilities uh, as a conduit between the product being manufactured and uh, myself getting it in the glass. Mm -hmm. And I'm a conduit between the people seeing the band and the band getting on a truck and going somewhere, right? And so... Uh, and even more so because I'm actually not fixed to a venue, so <laughs> I can pick up and go anywhere I want. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think that, uh, and what I meant earlier is that the the challenges that um, our challenges are a little different at the same time because you can't say no to a brand that's already in your book. Mm-hmm. I can say no to bands mm-hmm. that I don't believe uh, should be playing. Uh, I can. I can't pull a band that does something uh, that I don't agree with after I've confirmed them necessarily. I haven't had to do that. And so uh, I think that it's, it creates an, an interesting situation where, uh, speaking for myself, I feel as though uh, my goal moving forward is to be very careful with what I book and to be very conscientious of not just sort of the sonic perception of what I'm trying to create because uh, I feel as though after 10 editions, I've kind of figured that out. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the goal now is to add on to that and to um, put a lot of people on stage that represent everyone that I would love to be in this community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, it's not really a commercial gain because I think that one could construe it in that way. Uh, For me, it's just something that 
I want to see in music is I want to see a more inclusive space. And I think that for myself as a, a booker, part of that part of achieving that is by giving people a platform that not just look like us, but look like the people down the hallway that look like the people that are working on the construction site across the street mm -hmm. that look like the people working in the restaurant or working on the highway that we can see down there. So I, I think that it's important to show people that you have a place. Mm -hmm. How do you reach them? The audience or the the broader space that you're trying to incorporate and show them they have a place. Well, I, I think that uh, for the musicians, that's where I can start as the organizer is I have uh, an obligation that I want to fulfill of showing that by booking bands uh, that uh, contain members uh, from a lot of different backgrounds, that's one way of of at least showing that there's an opportunity for people to the, in this space of heavy metal, which is not the most diverse space on its own, mm -hmm. that I support bands that, um, that are uh, mixed in their membership uh, or that are not just dudes that look like us. Mm -hmm. And I'm fortunate to have a venue partner that believes in that as well too. And so that's one component. The other is hoping that people see that I, I have, you know, I have to find a way to get into communities where these people live as well and to uh, show them that here's a show that you can come to. But at a certain point, I have to rely on word of mouth because I'm also a really small organizer. Sure. Mm -hmm. Have you done much with this specific platform to try to bring some people in from communities that have nothing to do with your extant sphere to try to break down some of those walls or has that been sort of part of the, the have you, have you explored that process? For, uh, for us, I think that our, what we focused on with our guest curation, uh, has been a little bit more towards giving voices for people from other countries because my biggest gripe with the beverage media is that it's very America focused. Ooh, talking about the myopic eye on that is <laughs> absolutely something we can dig into another time. Yeah, and totally so agree. that's been priority number one. However, uh, I do feel as though there's space for us to work with that in the mm -hmm. future. Yeah, well phrased. Especially now that live music is coming back, you know, it's been on the back burner for the since we started. So, mm. yeah. I think we've just hit on what may be coming in the future. <laughs> Probably. Uh, for you, Samu, uh, what do you think these efforts look like uh, on behalf of a wholesaler or in your work as a wholesaler? Uh, I think it is increasingly difficult because the playing field is becoming more, uh, it's smaller. Uh, I was didn't didn't really look forward to any closures happening during shutdown but there was a sense beforehand that things were too dense too many bars too many breweries too many restaurants it's too much an overload i did not expect that more distributors would essentially fold than uh than breweries during that time frame and we can functionally say that breakthrough is gone 
Um, Windy City does exist, yes, but has become even more uh, drawn closer to the bosom of of CBS. Uh, so the the way that there but that's is not folding; that's consolidation. Consolidation. That is the name of the game, and that continues apace, even more so in other markets than here. Uh, uh, the, the 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 purchases that Reyes has made in California alone are millions upon millions of cases that a lot of people, when they go to the store, will never even realize is going on. Um, so uh, trying to figure out how to carve out that independent space and support, uh, and there, there, is an, there, there is an element of competition that is fundamental to any distributor going in anywhere and saying, here's what I have versus here's what they have. Uh, but trying to understand what each of these different organizations is trying to say, the sort of space that they're trying to carve out for themselves, um, to some degree whether they're doing that fairly, and then uh, the kind of people that they're choosing to partner with, I think gives people in my position uh, a pretty good amount of autonomy to identify and sort of anoint your peers, as it were. Uh, I feel lucky in that respect. Um, Glenn certainly has some, some major components to his portfolio. Um, I mentioned PBR earlier, and there's some AB components, but it is still an independent organization, family-owned, that has been around for 132 years. And uh, there is a an acknowledgement of what is building up and supporting the local space, uh, or what are these multi-generational family-owned businesses from abroad? Where are these ideological resonances? as opposed to just what is the absolute bottom line dollar. And um, I, I do want to see there be more independent, flourishing spaces for that. Um, earlier today, I was chatting with somebody from Heartland, and uh, I salute them in the full. Uh, a group that is relatively new, that is bringing in a, a variety of expressions from different categories, I think that adds more flavor and texture to the, the category at large. Um, that exists also in the restaurant space, finding more independent places as opposed to massive chains. Uh, that's one thing we can lay on the suburbs with a very broad stroke is how many truly independent spaces do you see in a lot of those neighborhoods? And mm -hmm. that's not the resident's fault. It's, it's just the nature of the beast. And um, that also exists in the music world of... Yeah, there are these different impressions of these small labels, but ultimately there are not really that many major decision makers. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping somehow that this last year will encourage a little more diversification of, of supply in all these different categories. I haven't really seen it happen yet, but I think there's still a lot of resonances that remain to be seen uh, as people come out of this and figure out where they really find their, their path forward probably diverted somewhat from the question that you were posing but yeah let me uh bring us back yep please do love your response to <laughs> love where you took it though <laughs> so one of the sort of components to kind of diversity in beer is where beer is sold and who can kind of become involved with it and what your what your uh, access points are mm -hmm. and there's a lot of discussion about the fact that craft beer is not available in a lot of neighborhoods where uh, is not available in a lot of neighborhoods, perhaps that are more uh, minority or 
that have more minorities living in them. Mm. And so as a wholesaler or does the, do wholesalers prioritize those areas or see any opportunities there, whether it's uh, marketing dollars or True. even just showing up? Yeah, showing up is a big thing. Uh, a lot of that does have to be dependent upon what you have to walk in the door with. And I think that's one of the things that makes Glunt's a little unusual is that there are a significant number of spaces where there is not a very developed craft community, um, but Glunt still has a lot of craft to play with and a couple big box sort of items. Whereas a number of other wholesalers uh, might say, all right, this spot, they crush um, Coors Light or Tecate or whatever it might be, and that's all we need to worry about. Whereas Glenn says, well, we technically cover this footprint, and if we want somebody to walk in the door and they don't have Stella or PBR, what have you got? And then that's where the more craft uh, or import kind of conversation happens. And um, I'm not saying that this is the world savior sort of way that it's going to just broaden the footprint for everybody and bring everyone into the, the big, broader sandbox of thinking and drinking better. But it's, it does oblige one to, um, to try to pick up a different thread and tug on it a little bit. Maybe it doesn't work because there are so many places. I'm sure you've all seen, you've been in... Uh, gone to a house party with someone and said, yeah, let's go get some beer. And you walk down the street and you see, oh, here's this craft thing that I like. And you pick it up and you realize it's a year old. Uh, that itself is in a completely different conversation and is part of the challenge of how do you try things and what's going to work and how long it takes to build up uh, an engagement, uh, an interest, um, the notion of what people are willing to pay, of course, for different sort of experiences. Uh, it's hard. It is, it is very hard and multifaceted. Um, and, and grueling also in that uh, the, the challenge of introducing a lot of those ideas into places where they are not asked for uh, takes not only confidence but knowledge and then follow through and execution and often a lot of luck um, getting to the right place at the right time and seeing how something just can turn. And retailers experience that too. Uh, visiting mm -hmm. people in Roscoe Village, for instance, 15, 20 years ago, may not have been as much of a craft haven, but now you have places like Four Moon, the Village Tap, that have been there for 20 years and are craft destinations, uh, as well as places that will still say, yeah, if you want to come and get a new PBR Pacifico, no problem, you can do that. Uh, it's made all the more challenging because um, the average so-called lifespan of somebody as a distributor representative or the beer buyer uh, or the trusted clerk behind the counter uh, who would give recommendations to somebody is pretty short. And the degree to which these, um, these generations of beer uh, can turn over very quickly makes it all the harder to try to thread that needle and keep that consistent growth happening. Honestly, so much of it comes down to, comes down to luck. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and as you mentioned, sometimes the lifespan of people working these jobs isn't as long as the funnel required. So mm, what uh, for Sabu's consulting services to <laughs> distributors, True. do you think that the commission model is a part of the problem as well mm. in that my time is money? And if I'm paid uh, 10% on my gross for my route, 
that I should really spend time in places where I'm going to get case stacks instead of spending an hour and a half in a neighborhood where I may not get any sales that week. Is that where wholesalers have an obligation or ought to invest more in support so that the longer term gains that they all talk about wanting and that the industry wants can actually happen? Well, uh, if people were paying 10% on gross, would be a, uh, we would probably be living in a different world. Uh, all I, the reps would be living in mansions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a Pearson query, and I think it can cut, or rather Pierce, uh, in different ways, in that if you are paying people commission and they're in spaces where their commission is governed by just dollars, then they might be further incentivized to support things that are more premium. And if somebody puts in, say, a 50K stacker of White Claw or the new Cactus something, whatever that is, uh, how much are they really getting on that versus placing a sixth barrel of some really specialty, unique, sour mixed culture ale? Uh, the dollar value between these two things really might not be that different overall. And depending on what your responsibilities are, if you have to then go back and merchandise that stack, uh, if you have to um, go to that retail store twice a week to check on things and take all their inventory before you put that in, versus just having a good relationship with somebody and saying, hey, here's this new, really neat kind of beer that does this and this and this, and they say, great, all for it. There may not be as much difference between those two as we perceive. I do, though, think that, generally speaking, a commission model, of course, will drive people towards the dollars, but it is a little more nuanced than that because there's the back end of that in that if people are paid on just pushing everything in, that's a pretty short-term idea. If you do that and then uh, things start going out of code and your retailers don't trust you because you told them this was going to sell or you blind ship something, um, you sour that relationship and uh, it doesn't do you much good in the long run, long run to, to chase that model. Maybe if you jump from spot to spot to spot, as it seems often people do in this industry, you can sustain that for a period of time and just build up this burnishing reputation. Here are my great green numbers. Everything looks just golden. But uh, eventually I think it does catch up. And although there are a lot of people who bounce in and out of the industry, um, I think there are a lot of people on the in-between space, sort of where we are, uh, rather, I am primarily, uh, who tend to spend a lot of time in that tier and can develop reputations. So um, the, the compensation model does have issues, much like, say, the tipping model um, mm -hmm. for, for restaurateurs. Uh, but it's not clearly a black and white sort of scenario. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, at a certain point, if wholesalers do want to grow their businesses, they have to support reps to take their time yeah. in places, whether it's dealing with someone like me that um, as a recuperating buyer, <laughs> mm -hmm. but when I was a non-recuperating buyer, like I was probably a pain in the ass to deal with. And that requires time to build that relationship too. Hmm. And I feel as though in the before times, that was actually a power dynamic that buyers would 
use in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And so uh, it's challenging when your sales funnel is that long, whether it's in that context or spending an hour and a half in an, in a neighborhood where there may not be any sales, but because that is your area, mm -hmm. it's, it's challenging. And so not necessarily that people that end up in those situations are more on a comp on a commission compensation versus a salary, but it, it is challenging, uh, because ultimately it is in everyone's interest, no matter where you're coming from, that craft beer is more accessible for people. Give them the opportunity. Yes. You want mm. them to have the opportunity. And so it's a matter of now, how does that happen? Mm. Uh, there, are the, I believe most, most organizations will say, if you don't hit this level, then the, this is a base. And understand that there are not as many, that the ceiling may not be as high where you are, but want to try to make sure that there is something that is guaranteed for you and then perhaps can incentivize you through learning about uh, the other tiers of the business or rather uh, inputs to the portfolio that you can build upon, work with, and um, kind of make your own. Because much as uh, a portfolio of bands within a label or uh, a, a brewery's own portfolio, the sort of styles they make, what sells for them versus what they actually want to make, uh, that's something we hadn't talked as much about. We touched on the idea of the flagship we claim versus the flagship that the market demands. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are all very relevant variables. Uh, it's just, it's it's hard to keep up too when, when either A, turnover is what it is, particularly in the last year, uh, or when categories come out of nowhere to totally dominate a space that nobody even knew was a thing. Uh, just a brief handful of years ago. Uh, that could be alluding to hazy IPAs. That could be alluding to seltzers. Brute IPAs. Uh, brute IPAs. <laughs> the greatest category of all time. I will I will celebrate the Brute IPA. <laughs> I would argue that just nobody in Chicago, uh, that's not true. I had a couple good ones, but for the most part, people just didn't do it well. And I think that's why. I will celebrate its brevity. <clears throat> it's exemplary in its brevity. Uh, got in, did its business and got out. Sure, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I but I mean, as black IPAs come back and the Zima came back, perhaps the Brute will come back in a couple of years. Who knows? Everything is cyclical. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think we're at a good uh, wrapping point here. Uh, Samu, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any uh, final thoughts for our audience? Uh, gosh, um, hope to see you again, perhaps. For part two. It's it sounds gonna... like we have a lot of untouched topics. I so, think we have uh, more untouched topics yeah. than those that we actually did touch. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, until then, I would say, um, yeah, uh, appreciate the audience that you have cultivated. Actually, we'll take that to just uh, a shout out to you uh, and both of you uh, for doing what you've done here. And in lieu of being able to be as as much the cultivators of, of gatherings and space um, that was denied to us in this last year that I particularly realized was one of the main ways in which I really understood and appreciated and engaged with the world uh, that you were able to find a different way to articulate that and communicate that to people that you care about and hopefully people who don't know that mm -hmm. also maybe could care about it. And um, it's something that I hope is uh, an ongoing ongoing effort. And I uh, appreciate you inviting me to be a part of it. It was a pleasure having you. Samu, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time.